Open up your Bibles with me to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I want to say first of all that it is a uh, tremendous privilege to be able to share with you guys. Not only to be able to share here with you, but to serve alongside of you. That God has called us, chosen us, appointed us, and anointed us in all of these different cities that are represented here. To do the work of the gospel, to see people saved and come to Christ. And what a privilege for us to be able to do that. I also have to say, I didn't think I'd be nervous, but I get up here and look at your faces and I'm nervous. I uh, also really covet your prayers. I've had a lot of questions about my wife. So for those of you who don't know, I kind of want to fill you in with what's happening. And then I want to pray for her and some others that are here that are sick and dealing with similar issues. Uh, in September of last year, my wife was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer and uh, she's which is 49 years old, had never smoked. Uh, it uh, was a life-shaking experience for us. Uh, after a series of false starts and taking about seven weeks to get started on treatment, she started on a gene therapy treatment, and uh, today there is no evidence of cancer, which is just absolutely amazing. We don't know whether the Lord touched her and healed her or whether God has used the medicine to heal her. Every two months we go in for a PET scan and then we got to go talk to the doctor. And uh, I find myself a little bit anxious every two months. Uh, we got the next one coming up on the 9th of June. And uh, then the 12th we go in to talk to the doctor. And uh, so I'm finding myself again already a little anxious about that. But God has been so good. His fingerprints have been all over this thing. And um, as they always are, aren't they? It's just God meets us. And I, I can tell you going through this that God is a very real presence in a time of need. The texts that we got of scriptures, uh, the calls, the people left messages, the things that they shared were exact things that we needed in exact moments. It's at that time that you realize how awesome the body of Christ is, how we really do bear one another's burdens and, uh, and are there for one another in times of crisis. And I realize that a lot of you are going through the same thing. A lot of you are personally facing illnesses. We want to pray for Pastor Chuck. We want to pray for Damien. I want to pray for my wife. And I can ask you guys, uh, we believe in the power of prayer. We believe that God changes destinies. We believe God moves because we pray. We believe that life is different after we pray because we have called out on the name of the living God. And uh, please pray for my wife. Uh, remember to pray for those who are struggling. God tests us. There have been a lot of tests in this, but we have seen God's hand in such a tremendous way. Just another praise report along the way of maybe just encouraging faith. Before we left, our, um, our CPA, his daughter had had a tumor in her eye. She's 10 years old. They removed the tumor, and the initial reports were that it was melanoma, the initial pathology. And um, we left, and we anointed her with oil and prayed for her, and... Uh, just a broken heart, really, for them. And uh, I, uh, last night I got a message from Steve, who's our CPA again, and uh, he uh, had gotten the, the detailed pathology back, and it wasn't melanoma. And so uh, just seeing God's hand moving in just such awesome ways and knowing that prayer really makes such an incredible difference. Let's, uh, let's spend a moment. Let me find 2 Corinthians first, because I can't do two things at one time. And um, I've been flipping around since I've been talking. So let me find this. And uh, 
Let's uh, let's pray for this message. Let's uh, let's pray for those of you that are are sick and struggling, because I know that a lot of you are. I know a lot of you got uh, the same kind of stories that I have. Um, let's pray for our wives. Let's pray for Pastor Chuck. Let's pray for Kay. Let's uh, really just spend a moment to lift up those who are struggling with illness in our presence and pray for this study. Father, I want to thank you, Lord, again for your your hand, your presence. You indeed are a very real presence in a time of need and you meet us you speak to us you show us what you want from us and we are so thankful that we see your hand in our life and uh lord we do wish we were never tested we do wish we never faced struggles or difficulties or hardships but you promised us that in this world we would we realize that we handle them in a radically different way than the world i thank you Lord, once again, for your grace, for the blessings for my wife, we pray for her. We pray that you would extend her years. And uh, Lord, we pray the same for Pastor Chuck. Extend his years. Lord, let them be fruitful and use him. Continue to open up doors for him as he encourages us. And every man in this room has a story of how Chuck has touched their lives. Lord, we pray that you would move. We pray for Damien, Lord, in the beginning of these these stages and just figuring out what's happening and what's going on. And Lord, we trust and we know that you are a very real presence for them in their time of need. But we also pray that you would touch him and heal him. We pray that there would be a miraculous story told of how you moved. And um, Lord, I also want to pray for the, the men that are in this room who are struggling with sickness. Some of them having gone through cancer and battling it and uh, surviving now. Some of them in the midst of it. Some of them other kinds of sicknesses and diseases. And Lord, we pray that you would be the healer. You've said that when we lay hands on the sick, they will recover. And Lord, we believe that. We call out upon your name. We pray that you would touch them and heal them. We also pray that you would encourage our hearts today as we study your word. Your word is so powerful and it touches our hearts. It's a lamp and a light unto our feet, and we need it. As much as we give it out, as much as we know that our fellowships need it, we need it as we're here with you. We pray that you'd bless this time in Second Corinthians chapter 3. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Who is sufficient for these things? Paul had said in Second Corinthians chapter 2, the end of verse 16. And when we think about that, and if we were to look at ourselves today and ask that question, which one of us in this room is sufficient for the call that we have received? If we indeed are the aroma of God sent out into the world, if God uses us to transform people's lives, James tells us that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways snatches a soul from hell. And just as I believe that prayer changes things, that prayer changes destiny, so I believe that when we preach the word of God, people, their destinies are changed. We are involved in a battle and Satan wants to take people to hell and we are rescuing people from hell as we preach the gospel and we give them opportunities to come to Christ. This is a very real battle. We are not of the persuasion that believes that 
people are going to get saved one way or another. We believe that they will not believe if they don't hear. And if they don't, if there's no one to preach it, then how are they going to hear? And that we have been called to preach that message. And because you have shared the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost and perishing, that God has led into your place because you have encouraged and equipped the people in your body and sent them out. And they have shared the message of the gospel to those that are lost, dying and perishing. People have been saved and destinies have been changed. If that really is all writing on me, if that really is writing upon you, if what you do in the next week or month or year or ten years, if Jesus tarries, rides on you, then who is sufficient for these things? Is the best teacher in here sufficient for that? And he is here somewhere. One of you guys is the absolute best among us. It's probably not the one who thinks he's the best, but somewhere in this room is somebody that is just, if it were rated, he would be the best. But that's not what makes us sufficient. And that's what Paul goes to in this chapter. He speaks of what is sufficient and our sufficiency that is found in Jesus Christ. Paul, as David shared with us last night, has an uneasy relationship with the Corinthians, they've talked about him. They've talked about how he looks weak. They've talked about whether or not he has the right to speak there. It's interesting because I wonder if Paul ever felt like an outsider to the rest of the disciples. I realize that some of you guys, you come to a conference like this and you feel like an outsider to some degree. You see people fellowshipping and laughing and hugging and you wonder, you know, where are those relationships and friendships with me? Well, think of Paul. Paul wasn't one of the disciples. And yet Paul is used by God, in my opinion, in a greater way than any of the other disciples. In a greater way than John. He wrote most of the New Testament. He brought the message of the gospel literally around the known world in his day. The other disciples were not used in that powerful of a way. And yet people said, Paul wasn't with Jesus. And people said, God, uh, he's, he's weak in appearance. Strong in letter. But he's weak in appearance. Look at him. Big bulgy eyes, bow legs. Doesn't fit the, the look of what you would consider in that day. And uh, Paul, of course, came to Christ on the road to Damascus. Bright light. And Paul says, as one born out of time, I saw him. Then he went to Damascus for a little while, taken by God into Arabia, and then goes to Antioch and gets sent out by those in Antioch. And now he's preaching the gospel, but he's never spent time. With James, the brother of Jesus, he's never spent time with Peter or John or any of those guys. And he can't get a letter of recommendation from them. He can't get an ordination from those guys. Now, in their day, in our day, we get ordinations. In our day, there's a Bible college that you spend some time in, or there's a seminary that you went to, or some church identified that you'd never get one from a seminary or a Bible college. So here, just take one. I know you need it. So, and, and, and by the way, I'm in that list, all right? I would have never have gotten one from a seminary or a Bible college. I just kind of got one and was amazed that I, I got one. But in their day, they had letters of recommendation. And, and people would show up in their towns and they would say, I got a letter of recommendation from Peter. I got a letter of recommendation from the church that's in Jerusalem. And, and uh, so I want to share with you. 
And the Corinthians, obviously, from our text, had said, where's Paul's letter of recommendation? Where John, Peter, James, where, they don't talk about Paul. How does he have the right to come? And so Paul starts off chapter 3, being defensive, defending himself. He says, do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or do we need as some others epistles? The word epistle means letter, right? Of commendation. The word commendation means recommendation. So he's saying literally, do we need as others letters of recommendation or commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You guys want to write me a letter? And I'll take that letter around and show people that I got a letter from the church in Corinth. If there is a group of men on the face of this earth that understands that ordination is not important, it is this group of men. I, I don't know that there would be any other that would do that. And, and the crazy thing is that some of you guys, as I said, got your ordination from people who just said, we recognize that God has ordained you, and so here, you are, you are ordained. And you guys that never went to Bible college and never went to a, a, a seminary, that you guys have Bible colleges in your churches. And now kids are going through them. And the irony is sometimes we begin to think, well, they didn't go through Bible our Bible college, so I don't know if we can use them. Well, if that's the case, then how could God use us? Of course, we realize, as Paul did, that it's not about an ordination. It's about the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit being poured upon us. And Paul knew it's better to have the gift of the Spirit, the empowering of the Spirit, the anointing of the Spirit, the call of God on your life, the choosing of God on your life, the sending out that you have to the area that you are at, than it is to have any piece of paper that may tell you that it's okay for, for you to teach. Now, some of you guys are like me. I uh, did upholstery before I went out and started a church. I was a youth pastor in Calvary Chapel of Albuquerque for several years. I was a youth pastor in a four-square church before there. So I did have on-the-job training. That's how some of you guys came through. Others of you guys came through Bible colleges. Others of you guys came through seminaries. Having a letter of recommendation, having an ordination doesn't disqualify you, does it? But it doesn't qualify you. And sometimes we've gotten that attitude in Calvary. Well, he went to seminary. We didn't go to seminary. He went to seminary. Obviously, doesn't matter. What matters is the power and the call of God. And however God wants to work on your life to get you to that place where you are ready to be used by Him. And so then Paul says, here's my letter of recommendation. I think Paul is probably, wouldn't you agree with me, a little bit, a little bit insecure. I, I don't know. I, you know, I, I realize I'm, maybe this is a bit of a stretch and maybe I'm wrong about this. But as I read this, I think, and I read the beginning of Paul's letters, Paul, an apostle, not by the will of men, but by the will of God. That's a little defensive, isn't it? I mean, I might be wrong, again, but I, I think it's a little defensive. I think people have said, Paul is an apostle by who? Paul, by God, that's who. Need to have anything else? Do you feel insecure, ever? Is there ever a time you don't feel insecure? Do you feel at times like you have to defend who you are? Feel like people aren't giving you the respect? 
Have you ever said, when someone comes up and says something to you after a service, people, people wouldn't say that to Chuck. People, people wouldn't say that to Skip. I don't think Greg Laurie would ever have that said to him. They say it to me. Here's what I believe. I believe that when we are defensive, I believe that when we are insecure in our position, that we are not operating really by being led by the Spirit, and we are more prone to overreact. And so when someone challenges us, when someone says something to us that really hurts us, something they wouldn't say to Skip or they wouldn't say to Greg, but, you know, I think if you sat down and talked to those guys, to Chuck, I think you'd be amazed at the things people have said to them as well. You find yourself overreacting in such a way that you begin to lord over the flock. You know what? You really can't talk to me that way. I'm the pastor of the church. I am king. You are banished from the kingdom. Where's my associate pastor? I want to tell him to never let this person in again. See that guy there? Never. Don't ever do those things. First of all, you need some of those things said to you. You need people to challenge you. You need to know that you make mistakes. You need to know that sometimes you need to back out of things. I don't like it. I have plenty of people that will come up and talk to me and they say the weirdest things and the strangest things and I don't like it. I went to uh, preach the word conference a few years ago and Charles Swindoll was there and he gave a message on uh, entitled boars in God's vineyard. And he just kind of went through his, his history of men that caused him problems in his ministry. And again, you think Charles Swindoll has problems with people in ministry. In fact, at this conference, which was 08, I think, 07, 08, 09, maybe, um, he said that uh, the last two years of his ministry had been the most difficult times in his ministry. And after telling all of those stories, and then he said, why does God put boars in your vineyard? Why do you guys have those people that are headaches and cause you problems that you want to just reach out and get them out of there? The blessed subtractions, as it were. And then he said this. Because you need it. Because God needs you to walk humbly before him. Because you need to know that you are not king of the forest. And that you're not supposed to be lording over people anyway, in any way, shape, or form. And any time we hear of any church, and especially of a Calvary chapel that is now lording over the flock, that's so sad. And I think it comes out of insecurity. I really do. I, I, I think that if you're secure in who you are, so someone challenges you. So what? Forget about it. And move on. Maybe listen to them. Was it Bill Bright said in every criticism, there's a nugget of truth? Maybe, maybe, they're, maybe they're right. <laughs> maybe what they said to you needed to be said to you. Doesn't God use humble people? Didn't God say, I'll exalt those who are humble and I'll bring down those who are prideful? God will do it. So, what is it that gives us security? What is it that confirms that God's working in us. I want to know that God is has me in Tucson. I want to know that God's working through me. I need to be secure. I need to be confident. So, so what does that? Do, do numbers do that? Numbers in a church? 
Some of the largest churches in America are the most whack churches in America. And the Bible says that in the last days, men are going to heap up for themselves teachers who will tickle their ears. And so we realize that numbers aren't it. You might have a lot of people in your church. Doesn't mean anything. Finances aren't it. We know that God, where God guides, God provides. And certainly we can look for some direction in that. Does God want me doing this and he's provided for it? Or God doesn't want me doing this, he hasn't provided for it. So we just move on and do what we want to do. But, hey, again, some of the most bizarre churches are the richest churches out there. And if confirmation that a church was doing what was right and that you were supposed to be there was money, then uh, there's a lot of churches doing the right thing that are on the wrong end of that one. So it's not finances. It's certainly not people's praise. You get that anyway. You get people coming up and saying, oh, your ministry's just blessed me and you've done so much for me and I really, really appreciate it. The person that praises you the most is most likely the one to stab you in the back quickest. <laughs> A lot of amens on that and nodding of the heads on that. And I can tell it's from experience, isn't it, boys? Yeah, A lot of people, they give us all of that. I have a friend of mine who says that he knows that if somebody comes up and says, I was going to this church, but I love you. And this, he knows they're not coming back again. They're just not going to show up again. So what is the confirmation that God is at work in our midst? Well, Paul says this is his confirmation. You are our epistle written on hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered to by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh. That is the heart. You are our letter of recommendation. Changed lives. Whether it is a changed life, whether you minister to five people, or whether you minister to 5,000, or 50,000, changed lives is the confirmation that God is using you. And I believe that our prayer, I believe a good prayer for us is always, Lord, my life is yours. I surrender to you. I have died to myself and I'm now living for you. And if you want to use me in greatness, I'm available for that. Some of us may throw in and I prefer that. I'll go in front of the thousands if you want me to. Or I'll go to a small town in the middle of Arizona, or a small town in the middle of Texas, or a small town in the middle of Virginia, and I'll preach to 5, 10, 15 people. I'm there. What is our lives? Anyway, if it's really Christ, what is our lives? Is it about your fame? Or is it about His? And so you say, Lord, I'll go and I'll do whatever. And if you're ministering to five people and their, their lives have been changed, not by, they've been ministered to by you, but the change didn't come from you, right? That's what he said. Ministered to by us, but written on by the Spirit. God's the one that touches their lives, but you know that you're in the right place doing the right thing when people's lives are being changed. If you are at a place and you look out and you say, there have been no changed lives from my preaching, from my ministry, then maybe it is time to look at where you are and to wonder if you are in the right place. I'm not talking about people who raise their hands, right? We do an altar call at the end of every one of our services. We have people raise our hands. Uh, we do a lot to try to get them plugged in. 
But, you, you know, people who raise their hands, some of them are getting saved and some of them aren't. We realize that. We know that. We don't think everybody raises their hand is getting saved. It's like when you keep the numbers at the end of the year. We had, you know, 10,000 people get saved this year. No, you had 10,000 people raise their hands this year. How many actually got saved? Only God knows. But it doesn't matter if it's one person that's having their life changed or 10,000. That is the fruit of the ministry. That's the fruit of what we do. Changed lives, written epistles by which you can see the hand of God on their lives and what's happening in them. And so Paul says, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh. This is the, uh, this is the heart. And we have much such trust through Christ towards God. That is our confirmation. Now, he then says in verse 5, Now, we are sufficient, or uh, not that we are sufficient ourselves, to think of anything as being from ourselves. So he says, I'm not boasting to you guys that we were the ministers, because we are not sufficient within ourselves. Now, the word sufficient, not a very complimentary word. If on your next anniversary, you decided to go online and write a card for your wife. Have you noticed how poor the cards are? I just had my 30th anniversary with my wife and uh, I went I was late in my card. So I'm in Safeway and I'm picking up cards and I'm reading them. No, 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 no. None of them work. I even thought about I'll just cross that out and rewrite that. I'll cross that out and I'll rewrite that. So you go online and you write her a card. Honey, for the last whatever years you have been absolutely sufficient for me. Huh. I don't think you're going to have a very good anniversary. Because <laughs> it's not a very complimentary word. Sufficient. When I began to look at the sufficiency of Christ. You know, Jesus is adequate, guys. The word sufficient is an interesting word. It's used many times in the scriptures. It's only used a handful of times translated as sufficient. It's ten times translated many, two times great, six times much, five times as worthy, and a bunch of times, one time, as different things. It is a word that probably is better translated more than sufficient. Because he can do exceedingly, abundantly above all that we can think or ask. Isn't that amazing? Exceedingly, abundantly above what I can ask. I can ask a lot. I can call out, and God can do exceedingly abundantly above that. And He is more than sufficient. And there ought to be a, a confidence when you stand up before your people. I, we were beginning another campus. This is back in the middle of the 90s. We were starting a second campus and and uh, on the east side of town and we were looking at a church building with denomination had to be able to buy it. And I met with the pastor and the church had been dwindling and um, we made our offer and it had to be approved by the denomination. So I was supposed to call him back in a week. So the week went by and I called him back and uh, I said, John, this is uh, this is Robert from Calvary. And he said, uh, listen, I uh, think it's very important that you call me Pastor John. Uh, I'm a pastor here at this church and uh I have to tell my people, too, from time to time when they call me John, to call me Pastor John. Now, we're Calvary Chapel, right? And that's like a joke we would pull on one another. Am I right? 
you would call me up and I would say, hey, and you would say, you call me pastor. And we would hey, <laughs> that's a knee slapper. That's funny. That's what that is. So I laugh when he says it. <laughs> and then I realize that he's serious. So I'm like, <laughs> all right, Pastor John. You can call me Robert. <clears throat> I realized as I thought about it later, because it did get, you know, kind of stick in my craw a little bit. I did kind of feel like, yeah, you know, anybody that has to demand you call me this. And, you know, not so much for me, but as people. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? You know, we know it's wrong. We can see it right away. Can you imagine this person in his church? Hey, John, would you? You call me Pastor John. All right, Pastor John. But don't you think he said that to me because his church was dwindling? Because he was insecure. I, I wonder what kind of weird or strange things we do when we are insecure. To try to make ourselves feel like we legitimately are supposed to be here. This is where I'm at. What kind of things we do. For Paul, it was this changed lives and that God is more than sufficient. And however you, however you feel when you share... Whether you get up with great confidence or whether you struggle. Any of you guys have inconsistency in the messages you give? Any of you guys one week you feel like, that was good. Knocked that one out of the park. The next week you're up there and you got that deer in headlight look in the face. People are starting to sleep 20 minutes into the message. And you realize that what they're hearing, you're just not feeling it. You're just not feeling that. You're not connecting. You're not interacting. And you're pretty sure what they're hearing is blah, 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 blah. And while they're hearing that, they're thinking, I think I'll have pizza for lunch. And I can't wait to watch the game later on this afternoon. And is that dirt on the ground? They're thinking about anything. But what you're saying, I... I don't know, a few months ago, I had one of those on a Saturday night service. We have a Saturday night service, then several Sunday mornings. And uh, we had a Saturday night service, and I felt like that was horrible. I felt like that was awful. It just stunk. So I went home, and I reworked on the message for about an hour. And uh, I walked back in the next day, and our security guy, which our security team, don't tell them I said this has gotten a little overboard, but I love them. They really want to protect me. Um, and security guy's there, and he says, uh, he says uh, that was an awesome message last night were you in the same service that i was in because and he goes my wife told me to tell you that it's the best message you ever gave now here's what i think how many of you guys have had that experience right and so you go god isn't me or it's you isn't it i i think it's me I think, yeah, that was good. Got him going. Yeah, a lot of interaction. And God says, it's certainly not a personality or any dynamics or any laughter. So he said to me one time, you ought to, you ought to be a stand-up comedian. That's like the worst insult you could get, isn't it, as a pastor? You go, Lord, forgive me, and I'm sorry. It's nothing to do with our presentations. It's everything to do with the Spirit of God working on the heart of people. It's nothing to do with the packaging of your church. It's nothing to do with your facilities. 
if it is, then I mean, look, really, why don't we just go get businessmen to run the church? Why don't we go raise some money, get a building? Say so that because that's what it's, it gets. A, it's a building. It's somebody who's dynamic. Somebody can make people laugh and cry. Somebody can give a good presentation. If that really is what it is, then anybody who has any training in how to be successful in business can make a church happen. But if it's the Spirit of God, then God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And we go, Amen, that's me. That's me. I'm the foolish thing of the world to confound the wise. And so we read the latest church book, growth book, or we read about how, you know, this guy did this and the church grow and that guy did that and look at this guy over here and maybe I need to do that and maybe I need to start wearing hipper clothes or maybe I need to throw in a cuss word or two at the message because, you know, we're not a, a PG church or community. Maybe I ought to, you know, go out and dress hipper. I could be cool. So you go out and get a cool looking shirt. And here's the thing. Being cool is like being six foot tall. You either are or you aren't. That's it. And if you are not cool, none's going to, you can go out and you can buy the, all the clothes the cool guys are wearing. And you wear them and you just look, and people go, whoa. But if you're cool, you can wear the dorkiest stuff and people go, I'm going to buy that. Well, that looks good. Don't go buy it. And don't go out and copy what other people are doing. I heard Skip talking about this years ago, and I came out of Skip Heitzig's church, and I heard Skip talking about years ago, and we had just started in Tucson, and Skip said to me, he was teaching at a camp conference, and he said, um, I'm sitting there, and he goes, you know, if you're a hangout guy, like, you know, Robert Furl's a hangout guy, just be a hangout guy. I wasn't quite sure what a hangout guy was. I mean, am I a hangout guy? I guess that's what I am. I'm just a hangout guy. So this message is brought to us a lot, but I think it's good to be reminded. So easy to be yourself. So easy just to get up and be yourself when you preach. And if you are yourself and you're preaching the message of the gospel and you know it's not me, it's the message. And the message gets in people's lives and the seeds get planted. And people start to grow and they start to produce and they start to move. Then you go, I can still be me. And next week, I don't got to be Skip, which I tried to be in a few of my services. But I just didn't have the hair. It just didn't happen. Or Chuck. Now, open up your Bibles with me. You know, pause long. Because I make a poor Chuck and I make a poor Skip, but I make a great Robert Furrow. And if, if, I'm, if people have come in and been ministered to and God's moving through me as me, then that makes ministry pretty easy. I can just go and do that. And so God is sufficient. He's the one that's doing it. Lives are being changed. He says, not that we are sufficient ourselves. Then verse 6, who also made us sufficient as ministers. Who is it that makes us sufficient? God, as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, of the, uh, not of the letter but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. That's the, the Old Testament. Kills. Now, we all know that we're not under the law. Um, 
Paul said in Galatians, the law is a tutor to bring us to Christ. Once we come to Christ, we don't need the law. The law, Jesus didn't do away with it. He completed it. He finished it. He said, not one jot or tittle will pass away, but I will fulfill it. So he finished it. So he is our Sabbath, so we don't go to church on Saturday. I mean, we don't keep any of the other Sabbath laws, by the way. Sabbatarians who say, well, I'm a Sabbatarian because I go to church on Saturday. Nothing in the Bible ever says that's keeping the Sabbath. If you want to be a Sabbatarian, you better read, read your Bible, find out what it says for you to do, because you're not keeping it. As you say that you're supposed to keep it. Well, we're set free from all of that, and I could go down a list. We don't do any of those things. But that doesn't mean, as Paul reminds us on so many occasions, that the law was bad. The law was good. Because the law showed us our sin. The law showed us our need for Christ. And even when we're going through Leviticus or the second part of Exodus and we're grinding it out, the law is good. The law shows us our need. The law is like a mirror, J. Vernon McGee said in his drawl, that shows us our need and that we need Christ. But there was glory with the, the law. When the law was given, there was an earthquake when the law was given. Ever been an earthquake on the confirmation of your preaching? Maybe some of you, probably. They earthquake while you were preaching. There was lightning and thunder when the law was given. Moses walked down off of that mountain after remaking the tablets with his little fit. And his face shone from his time with God. So he says here, reminding him of that. But if the ministry of death, and that's the way he refers to the law, but if the ministry of death written and engraved on stone was glorious, did you ever think of the law that way, by the way? You ever consider the law to be glorious? It's given by the angels were involved in it, the Bible says. It's glorious, that giving of the law. And if the giving of the law was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily on the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious. How then is the message that we have not more glorious and more powerful than the ministry of the law? That's the message we have. And if it's the move of the Spirit and the preaching of it, then all we got to do is communicate the message. we got to get that out there. He goes on to say in verse 9, For if the ministry of condemnation, another reference to the law, had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more glory. The, the message we have exceeds greatly the glory of the Old Testament. I think of Jesus saying of John the Baptist that he was the greatest of all the prophets, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. That, that's how much greater our message is, the, the new covenant is. I love this next verse. For even what was more glorious, or made glorious, had no glory in this respect. Because of the glory that excels. In other words, even as glorious as the Old Testament was, as glorious as the law was, it's like it doesn't have any glory because of the glory that excels in our message. In the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's so glorious. The message is so incredibly powerful. It's not the trappings in a church that saves people. Dale Moody was one of the greatest evangelists of all times. He lived in a time where there was a lot of change. The railroad was coming on the scene. He was a contemporary of Abraham Lincoln, really. He was a chaplain in the Civil War. When his church burned down, he became an evangelist. And thousands of people came out every night to see him for months in New York and in Georgia, um, several other places. And uh, you know what the biggest criticism was for D.L. Moody? 
that he was old-fashioned, that he brought an old message, the message of the gospel. If, in, if the Lord tarries for 200 years, and I can't imagine that, okay, but if it does, you know what will be the message that changes people's lives? The message of the gospel. And, you know, things change. And, and of course, we've got to, you know, we talk about relevance. How many of us have had conversations about relevance? If I have to sit around for a long conversation with other pastors about relevance again, I think I'm going to throw up. Well, of course we're relevant and we want to be. If you're telling analogies about carriages being pulled by horses, stop it. Use something that communicates to your body, all right? But I don't think that's, the, that's it. I don't think that you're not right. You were born and brought up in our culture. You know our culture. Well, you're in it. You know the nuances of our culture. Now, I realize there may be some of you guys that need to hear a message on relevance. And if you do, then hear it so we can stop talking about it. And, and, and become relevant. But relevance isn't the key. Worship. Having certain kinds of worship isn't the key. It doesn't say that the worship is more glorious than the law. So you say, well, our church would really grow if we had a worship team like that. Of course their churches grow and look at their worship team. I'm not like you that has a worship team like that. It's not the worship team that changes lives. And that's not to put down worship. Worship is awesome and has its place, and we know that. But what changes lives is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I heard Greg Laurie say years ago, don't underestimate the power of the gospel to change people's lives. Come back to the gospel often. Preach it often. He says, for if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we use great boldness in speech. That's what ought to give you boldness. Hey, I've got the greatest message that mankind will ever hear. And I ought to be bold in giving that message. Doesn't matter whether I am a dynamic personality or whether I'm just kind of a person that just... You got the message. Give the message. Toss out the seeds. Watch them grow. Paul says, I have boldness of speech because of the glory of the message. Unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadfastly at the end of which was passing away. Now there's a whole message here about time spent with God and a transfer of God's glory to us by spending time with him. And I'm not going to get into that. I wanted to kind of stay true to what the text is talking about, but it's good enough just to remind you, are you guarding that time with God? The glory, Moses would go before the Lord, his face would shine, he'd go out and it would fade. We need to spend that time with God. Verse 14, but their minds were blinded for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. Now, I realize he's talking about the law. He's talking about the Judaizers. That's the context, okay? But also in another place, it says those who don't believe, their eyes are blinded by the enemy. So there, when we're preaching, people come in and sit down and don't know Christ. There's a blindness. And we might try to be clever when we're really clever in our arguments, clever and to try to win them over to Christ. I heard somebody say one time that if you argue someone into the kingdom, they can be argued out of the kingdom. That it really has to be, a t only the veil can be lifted in Christ. 
That's why the preaching of the gospel is so necessary. It's why we have to do it often. Because then the veil is lifted and then they'll hear, then they'll receive. But their eyes are blind and there's a veil over their, their face. It goes on to say in verse 15, but even to this day when Moses is read, the veil lies on the heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So when someone comes to Christ and they turn to the Lord, the veil is taken away from them. It's interesting that, you know, we're getting more and more criticized because we have altar calls. We give people an opportunity to give their lives to Christ. Do not let that diminish the opportunities that you give for people to get saved. How many thousand got saved on the day of Pentecost? How did that happen if they didn't give them an opportunity? Don't, don't let that diminish what you do. Give people an opportunity. Doesn't matter what you do. Have them stand up, raise their hand, come forward, stand on their head, do a dance. Give them a chance. Throw out the net. If nobody responds, who cares? If you're giving your message and you say, is there anybody here who'd like to give their lives to Christ and you go into your altar call and no one raises their hand, it's not you that saves them anyway. It's God that saves them. You guys have had the experience too where again, you do a message you think isn't too good and a bunch of people get saved. You do one that you think is great and nobody gets saved. And again, God says, it's not you. It's me. God touching their heart. But then the veil is lifted away and then there's all kinds of things that can happen for verse 17. Now, the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. That's what sets people free. Not the trappings, not who you are, not your personality, not how well you teach or how well or, or how you don't teach so well, not your experience, not your facility, but simply the spirit of God moving on the heart of people changes them. And then in verse 18, he gives us what is closest that I found in the scriptures to the mechanics of salvation. What happens when someone is saved? How does that happen? And this is a this is controversial and it causes all people to you know wonder, does it happen before or after you say that you're saved or come to Christ or all of that? But here in verse 18, it says, but we all with unveiled faces. Now we've come to the Lord. We've turned to the Lord. The veil's been lifted, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed. As we see Christ, as we now stand with Him and we see the glory of God and we see Him, then we're being transformed. So our ministry is to lift the veil and then show Him Christ. And if we lift the veil and show Him Christ, then they're going to be transformed. And we're going to have the confirmation that we're supposed to be there. That we're doing what we're doing. And so He says being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. God gives different talents, doesn't He? To some He gives ten, and to some He gives five, and to some He gives one. Sometimes we look at a ten-talent guy and we go, Oh, I want to be a ten-talent guy. Sometimes we look at a five-talent guy, I'll, I'll be a five-talent guy, God. And we bury our talent. The interesting thing is, is that it wasn't the guy with a lot of talents that got rebuked. It was the guy with one. You bury your talent. Take it away from him and give it to the guy with ten. He's got ten. Shouldn't you give some of his to me? Look, God's given you what God's given you. God has given you a race to run. And that race may be ministering to five people or ministering to five thousand. That race may be as a dynamic pastor and it might be as a guy who just faithfully for 30 years gives the word of God 
week by week, day by day, and sees God's power move on people's lives. As we are faithful and present God's word faithfully, may God touch their lives, may the Spirit write on their hearts, and may that be the confirmation that we are doing as God has called us to do. And may may we deal with our insecurity. There's none of us who don't feel insecure, by the way. Nobody. Nobody. Every one of us do. You're not alone in feeling insecure about the position. We all feel like we are not sufficient for the task. And you feel that way because you're not. And you need the Spirit of God to move in your life. Pray with me, would you? Stand with me and let's pray. Can the worship group come back up as well? You guys still here? No? Father, I, we join together and call out upon your name and we think of our different churches and we think of our different ministries and we lift them up before you. And we thank you, as we did last night, for the changed lives. For those who have been set free, for the marriages that have been restored, from the people who were on their way to eternal damnation, who have changed their destinies and are now on their way to eternity with you. Thank you that in this room there's a representation of so much more. Of all that you are doing through Calvary Chapel and the few hundred who weren't able to make this conference. And Lord, we, we're sorry that we begin to think it's about us. We're sorry that we seek fame for ourselves. Forgive us when we are jealous of others and the work you do through them. Forgive us when we are overprotective of our communities that we are barely touching. And may you raise up men that would come and preach the gospel more and more. Lord, as we pray for a revival, raise up many young men who will take our place if you tarry to come in and preach faithfully the word of God to bring real and solid changes. Thank you for what you're doing at this conference and do more, Lord, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Bless you, God.